You're listening to One Decision, the programme that looks at the choices made that have international impact. And we are officially one year old. We are so grateful to have you, our listeners, on this journey with us as we seek out conversations and reflections with the key decision makers, experts and activists of today and consider how those in charge arrive at the choices that they've made and how those decisions stand today. Along the ride from day one has been my co-host, Sir Richard Dearlove, the former chief of MI6. He's had to make one or two important decisions in his time, steering British intelligence during some of the rockiest years of UK national security. From 1999 to 2004, a time that, of course, spanned the earlier years of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and the transition of Western security services around the world, seeing a rapid retuning from being forces responding to the end of the Cold War, to ones tasked with fighting insurgencies in the Middle East and responding to the security threats following the 9-11 attack. For this anniversary episode, we turned to you, our audience, to send us questions on what you think are the key challenges facing our leaders today, what choices need to be made and what you wanted answered from us. I'll start with one... That comes from Oswald, who has written to us on Twitter. It's a very big question, so I think we should open on this. His question is, demography. What will our world look like in 100 years? Is anyone interested in optimising for the outcome in Western societies versus next 10 years or election cycle? My word. (laughs) That is such a tough question to give a logical reply to. I suppose the first thing I would say is I don't think we pay enough attention to demographics. Mm. It's a crucial issue for many, many countries. There is not much discussion at the moment. We focus on climate change, but we don't focus on population change, either growth or decline. And there was a period of time in my earlier career when everybody spoke about population growth. I mean, it was a constant topic that came up and it somehow seems to have been pushed to one side and off the agenda. So it's a good question. But I think that it's much more straightforward than that in a way in that extrapolations from current trends, Mm. looking at population growth or decline are not necessarily logically mathematical. And I think that there are many examples where predictions have turned out to be not just wrong, but wildly wrong. So the current prediction that you know global population is in decline is probably a dangerous one if you take it as too much of a certainty. But on the other hand, it's not what the sort of experts say, but if you're thinking about climate change, mm. one of the more reassuring facts, if we have the time, mm. is that there are less people in this world. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, as you say, it's, it's, it's something that's difficult to predict because if you look at China, which was the... Well, which still is, but will shortly no longer be the world's biggest population. And the the legacy of the one-child policy, where they took out drastic policies to try and cut the number... Of, of people and, 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 the, and the huge birth rate. And, and now they have the opposite problem where they're trying to get people to have yeah. children again. And you have now a lot of Chinese citizens 
actually hesitating when it comes to having more children or starting a family because they say they can't afford it. And that's a trend that you you see in a lot of developed countries, which is interesting because in some developing countries, the birth rate is large because having children and having a large number of children is an economic argument. It helps sustain the family. Well, someone was telling me a very interesting anecdote about Chinese press. I think it was a, actually a Chinese Communist Party statement or announcement when it was saying to Chinese women, do not, as it were, depend on meeting Mr. Right. <laughs> Depend on meeting Mr. Well, he'll do. <laughs> Which, oh, it's the you, death if, of romance, you, isn't it? If you think about it, it's quite a depressing message yeah. for a government, you know, to be disseminating. Uh, and it shows a certain desperation. But actually, if you look at the demographics of Russia, if you look at the demographics of mm. China, they're really appalling. They contain very, very serious implications for the leadership because you have an aging population, mm. you have a declining workforce, you have all those problems of how a, you know, a smaller workforce is going to pay mm. for a lot of uneconomical citizens who are going to live a long time because of improvements in medical health. But on the other side of the scale, you have countries with very large and very, very rapidly increasing birth rates. And you have countries like Nigeria. I'm very interested in what happens in Nigeria in the decades to come because they have a growing population. It's a very young population. Mm. The number of people in Nigeria is, is going to grow. And it's also a country that is very, very dependent on oil. And so what happens if they cannot diversify their economy? Yeah. You have a, the, a very, very growing population in Central Africa, and then and you, you mentioned climate change. What is going to happen with with climate change and with seeing desert drift? I, I don't know the technical name for it, but temperatures rising and uh, across the world, well, and, and we're seeing climate yeah. migrant. Well, then you've got climate migrants, um, which I think is already a significant mm. feature of the African continent. I mean, when I lived in Kenya, which wasn't that long ago, it was in the late 60s um, was my first overseas posting. Wow. The population was somewhere, I think, between 15 and 16 million. And Kenya is an immensely uh, productive country agriculturally. Mm. had no problem feeding its population even then. I think now the population of Kenya is somewhere between 35 and 40 million. That's just in the latter stages of the 20th century. If you actually go and travel in bits of Kenya, you will see that the disintegration of the land holding the tiny little farms, which are now ec uneconomical, I mean, all the immediate problems of that huge social transformation. And the population has more than doubled in 40 years. This is such a huge question that we could spend a whole podcast yeah, talking about. But I, I, would, I would just say that my personal opinion, and it is an, a cynical negative one, I'm afraid, but I, I think that we are in no way prepared for some of the challenges 
challenges that await us. And I think what happened with COVID really demonstrated that we we live in, in systems that are very precariously balanced, whether it's the just-in-time supply chain or the way we live our lives and, and how we go to work and how we structure our, our lives. Everything from the fact that we rely on digital systems which are vulnerable mm-hmm. to attack and the fact that we have not even begun really thinking about the issue of water well, right. scarcity and all that. And we rising, were not prepared. Rising sea levels. Exactly. And then, the, yeah, the number, I mean, the, the city that I was born in, Jakarta, is they're wanting to up sticks and relocate their capital to, to Borneo. They're re- rebuilding the capital. In, in yeah. Balipapan. Yeah. yeah. And and so I, I think... And I've I, been in Jakarta when it's flooded. Oh, you have? I've actually, that was a long time ago, but it floods so quickly and so easily. Yeah. It's extraordinary. And of course, it's got much worse. But you only Built have a swamp. To, yeah, Jakarta. No, but you look at a map of Europe, and you can see predictions in thirty years' mm. time of which bits of coastal Europe will not really be habitable. I, I do, I do think we're sleepwalking into a number of issues, yeah. and I think it's a it's a pertinent part of that question where. Oswald raises, you know, is anyone going to be prepared to tackle that outside of an election cycle? And the question, the answer to that, I think personally, is is probably not. Well, let's move on to to the next one. This comes from Brian in Ireland. How will the China Taiwan situation play out over the next five to ten years? Now, I think that's interesting because we've just had President Xi Jinping opening the twentieth Party Congress in Beijing and he had some words to say about Taiwan and he has caused a lot of concern when it comes to Taiwan and and what we've had recently is the head of the US Navy warning that the American military must be prepared for the possibility of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan before 2024 they think that that the Chinese are actually going to do what I think has been generally accepted as the unthinkable, which is to actually move in on Taiwan in the very not-too-distant future. Do you think that's that's a real threat? Personally, I think an amphibious invasion of Taiwan is unlikely. Mm. Um, although Xi Jinping, if I understand it correctly, in his speech specifically did not rule out military solution to Mm. the problem of Taiwan. But I think if you look at it logically, the Chinese can achieve what they need to do or what they would want to do through a blockade. Mm. And a blockade would be a totally different strategy because it would take time for them to achieve Mm. their political objectives. But I mean, if, if China really seriously went about a blockade, then uh, life for the Taiwanese would be incredibly difficult given that it's an island that can be relatively easily blockaded. So without a sort of military conflict, it could become you know, an issue of negotiation. But negotiation under the coercion of a blockade, I think personally that's the way things would develop if China becomes more aggressive, which they're likely to do. It will depend on China's internal politics. It will depend on how the leadership in Taiwan stands in relation to one system, you know, two states uh, aspect of the Taiwanese uh, relationship with China at the moment. But the problems of an amphibious invasion are pretty extensive. And I think 
the Chinese probably would hesitate before they take that very decisive military step, particularly having seen what has happened to the vaunted Russian mm. military in trying to invade Ukraine, which is much more straightforward when you just have to roll across a land border. I mean, it's it's <clears throat> clearly that that invasion has not gone how she thought it was going to go, having signed up to that interesting meeting with Putin where they declared their friendship without limits and clearly Putin sold him an idea of oh I'm 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 going to I'm going to take a chunk out of Ukraine but don't you worry it's going to be over in a few yeah. days and the Chinese were willing to to get into bed with with the Russians on that and I remember analysts were saying were speculating whether she had asked Putin to hold off invading Ukraine until after the Winter Olympics were over. But remember, we spoke to Bob Gates, the former Secretary yeah. of Defense, and he put down the argument that you know, China doesn't need to physically invade Taiwan. They can very easily, as you said, put a blockade on it. They can do a lot of things with, with cyber. They can do a lot of things financially. They can make life pretty impossible for the Taiwanese until they essentially submit to, to Chinese rule. You know, whether Beijing starts on a war of attrition, I think one thing that that would do is put the US in a very difficult position because if it's a supply chain blockade or, or if it's tightening economic screws on Taiwan, does the US really want to risk military confrontation with China on the basis of small incremental steps of the Chinese. I think that's a very good point. I mean, what what is interesting recently is that Biden actually made a statement that mm. the US would intervene if there was a military invasion. And I don't think there has recently been such a clear statement. There's always been doubt about what the US disposition would be. So you're quite right. It would be very much more awkward for the Americans if there were just a sort of incremental increase in pressure and no clear invasion. Well, they couldn't really then mount mm. a military response. So I, I, I think the logic of the situation is pretty clear. A full-scale military invasion of Taiwan is, in my book, highly unlikely, unless there is a crisis in China and Xi Jinping feels that he needs to, as it were, make a demonstration of his mm. strength and power because he is dealing with, let's say, opposition or pressure to him from within the Chinese Communist Party. And, and, and that sort of internal political instability, if it were to happen, I'm not saying it will, mm. but it could, then it's something like that that could trigger this type of crisis. But in the normal run of events, a military invasion at the moment is, in my view, Unlikely. Right. I mean, that that is something that's sort of straight out of the playbook of a number of authoritarian leaders around the world. Externalize the threat, create yeah. an enemy outside sure. of our borders and to better unite the country. But what I think has been really interesting in the lead up to the 20th Party Congress, to say it's a sensitive time in China right now is such an understatement because this is an, an, an event that has been so carefully choreographed for so long. And in fact, Xi Jinping has introduced policies in the last few years designed to pave the way for as positive as possible a situation domestically, politically, economically, to help safeguard and pave the way for him having this unprecedented third term mm. in office. And it's gone to pot, really. I mean, the we've we've talked about the Evergrande 
property bubble crisis in China on the we've talked about that on the podcast before there are there's a growing number of little incidents which are just bubbling below the surface which demonstrate that Chinese are increasingly unhappy with the direction of his government and there was that incredible image that has been circulating this month with that huge banner on a flyover calling for boycotts and the removal of Xi Jinping on on this bridge the Sitong bridge and you know all the be- all the sensors that China has they were not able to pull those pictures down fast enough before they spread like wildfire across Chinese social media on that banner it said we want food not PCR tests we want freedom not lockdowns we want respect not lies we want reform not a cultural revolution we want a vote not a leader we want to be citizens not slaves I mean, he's in a difficult position. Do you think if he were to order an invasion into Taiwan, do you not think that that's going to make things even worse for him? Well, it probably would. But on the other hand, it is an autocracy. And I'm sure that one of the key party mechanisms is the party keeping control of the People's Liberation Army. Mm. So membership of the Politburo, membership of the Military Commission is a sort of key aspect of how the levers of power are operated by the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. And I don't see Xi Jinping really losing control at the moment of the Chinese military. Mm. So I think he's in a powerful position. But you're quite right. uh, There is a malaise in China. And I understand this from talking to my friends who are sort of expert analysts. They say that, you know, there's a complete loss of enthusiasm, especially mm. amongst the younger generation, for the idea of the success mm. of the communist revolution. I think there's some particular phrase that the Chinese use to describe the phenomenon amongst young people, which is like like switching off or mm. detaching yourself and just, you know, hunkering down and not looking to left and right and taking no interest and just surviving. And I think Xi Jinping's problem, which he doesn't seem to be solving yet, or there's no evidence of it in terms of the party congress, is how you regenerate enthusiasm Mm. for China and China's rise in the world. Because in a way, you know, China has done incredibly well in lifting people out of poverty. I mean, no other country, I think, can claim Mm. quite what the Chinese have done in lifting millions of their population out of poverty. So it's not that they are without success, but Mm. there is a complete lack of enthusiasm for Mm. the political system and the way that it functions. And I think your example of that banner appearing on that bridge is a very astute sort of description of perhaps what's wrong And we know things are badly wrong, but I I don't think there's yet any instability there. Mm. Let's move over to a question from the United States. This comes from Michael O'Hanlon. Sir Richard, dear love, due to your role as head of MI6 during the Iraq war, I'd be curious how much of an intelligence stream existed between yourself and our government here in the United States. Would you perhaps be able to recall any conversations with Donald Rumsfeld or Colin Powell? (laughs) Well, the answer, can I recall conversations with them, is yes. Can I talk about them in detail? I'm rather reluctant. Oh, go on, Richard. But no, I'm going to just say one thing to answer this question. And if this individual is particularly interested or if, if he's writing a PhD or something like that, I might be prepared to talk to him off the record. Well, I'm very interested. But what I'll say is, look, Rumsfeld 
had an ideological view mm. of Iraq. Mm. He had what I would describe maybe as a sort of neocon fixation mm. of the way that a successful invasion of Iraq might evolve politically afterwards. Mm. And I don't think that Rumsfeld was particularly interested, mm. uh, except maybe at a tactical level, in, 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 in what the intelligence picture looked like. Mm. Because there was the sort of neocon fixation mm. on what the what the regime would look like after the invasion, so he was coming from what one might call a almost an e-day fix, and it wasn't going to be mm. much changed. Uh, Colin Powell was completely different. Mm. He was pragmatic. Mm. I think Colin Powell would probably say today, to an extent. He was misled over the intelligence picture. That's a complicated thing to comment on. Mm. You remember he made that statement at the UN with the then head of CIA sitting behind him. Mm. He had a much more flexible, pragmatic view and I think was prepared to shift and change it. So he was not part of that um, inner neocon group. So my that's my answer mm -hmm. to the question. That's as far as I'm going to go at the moment. <laughs> when I spoke to both of them, I'm happy to say mm -hmm. I did speak to both of them. Obviously, I spoke to both of them. Never together, separately. Huh. <laughs> well, one of my favourite conversations that we've had on this podcast this year was with the former Secretary of Defence, Robert Gates, who was also Director of the CIA. And speaking to the both of you at the same time, it was, it was really interesting hearing how your views sort of bounced off each other and also your recollection of, of significant foreign policy events in our recent times. And we were talking about the withdrawal in Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover of Kabul and, well, of, of the entire country, really. And one of the questions I asked him was, you know, was, was the intelligence flawed? Did the intelligence not warn that a sudden withdrawal would lead to a power vacuum which, in which the Taliban would sweep in and, and, and just take up the entire country? And he didn't believe that it was an issue with the intelligence. And I remember you said something about how the difficult position is occupied by intelligence services and when intelligence gets politicised. And you said, I've been on the pointy end of that myself. And you didn't, see an, you didn't say anything more on that. But I have had that up my sleeve because I've wanted to return to that and wanted to ask you if you maybe wanted to talk a little more on that thread. Not really. I think, well, I'm happy to limit myself really to, to material which is perhaps already in the public domain. But I'll make one comment in relation to Iraq, but illustrative mm. of the problem. When political leaders have to take very tough strategic decisions, particularly if those that support them are not, as it were, happy with those decisions, they tend to wish to have a specific explanation mm. for what they're going to do. In the case of Iraq, was based by Blair in Parliament so that he could take the Parliamentary Labour Party with him mm. on the intelligence. Now, if you look at international decision-making as a whole, intelligence is a contributor, mm. 
but it's never, in my view, or very seldom should be a primary factor in decision-making. And I think what I said publicly about Iraq was that it, like, like a beam in the construction of a house, it was the king beam. The intelligence was the king beam, and it shouldn't have been. Mm. And more weight was placed on it than it could carry. The intelligence was, was much less wrong than people realize historically. That's a statement which is controversial, but I would be happy to uh, sort of extrapolate and explain why. But, 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 but you say it, more importance was placed on it than it should have been. Is that because of the intelligence from Iraq or is that because of the nature of intelligence itself, which is well, the nature a lot of, intelligence that, you yes, know. unsubstantiated yeah, rumour? No, no, I think it, it, it's the nature of intelligence mm. itself. You know, if you take a big policy decision, mm. there, there are all sorts of considerations mm. that should be used to justify the policy consideration. The intelligence is going to be a contributor, yeah. but it's not going to be the main reason. Mm. I think that the problem with Iraq was the intelligence, as it were, apparently became the main reason. Interestingly, it didn't in the United States. Mm. Bush made a policy decision, which was a policy decision based on their strategic considerations mm-hmm. of what was going on in the Middle East. And he never really majored on the intelligence case. I mean, the, to an extent, but not to the same degree as Tony Blair. Yeah. Tony Blair, for parliamentary reasons, majored on the intelligence case. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, that was not a good thing to have done. I mean, I remember sitting through his five-hour press conference React, reacting to the Chilcot inquiry, and I remember it so badly because it was my birthday and I was desperate to leave and I had to sit through the whole of this thing to cut up clips for the BBC News. And I think it was clear that he personally very much believed that it was the right thing to do. And I think partly the reason why he stayed so long to answer all these questions is he was so he, he was desperate to try and prove that it was a decision that he has lived with. Oh, Blair, Blair absolutely was convinced it was the right thing to but do. Did, but was, but, I mean, was, he that used pressure, was that pressure on the intelligence services to prove the theory that is a kind of influence, you know, getting... Well, I think there was pressure for us to come up with more and more, you know, evidence... You know, it was the right decision to take. I mean, I personally believe it at the time it was the right decision to take. Mm. Because of the opposition in Parliament to the decision, Mm. there was this pressure to persuade MPs to agree with Blair. Mm. Um, So, I mean, historically, it it was quite a complicated issue. Do do you think that's a process that really should not be repeated in, in a sense that there is political leaning on intelligence services to prove a certain outcome rather than for them to... Well, I think that's a very undesirable situation to be in. Um, the intelligence should speak for itself mm-hmm. uh, and then the politicians should make their decisions based on that and there should be a sort of disjuncture between mm-hmm. the two. I mean, there's no, no question about that. So that's as much as I'm going to say mm-hmm. in Iraq. <laughs> Let's go to an interesting question from Uldis uh, in Latvia. He asks, Vladimir Putin showed interest to join NATO at the beginning of the 20th century. What do you think was his motivation and considerations? Well, I think when Putin originally came to power, there was a general discussion about the role of NATO, the future of NATO. Mm. And set in the context of the Cold War, 
and the end of the Cold War, I suppose there was a certain logic in its extension eastwards. I mean, personally, I was very skeptical that there was any sense in the idea of Russian membership. Mm. And in a way, had Russia become a member, what exactly would have been the point of NATO? Mm. I mean, what, what, what would its role have been? And I think there were a lot of questions were anyway being asked at the end of the Cold War, even without its extension eastwards, does NATO have a purpose? Well, of course, it's turned out, thank goodness, NATO survived. Thank goodness it acquired new members that had been part of the former Soviet Union because we now realize that you know, Russia has not necessarily fundamentally changed its mm. historic character as a nation and that the Soviet Union and Russia were perhaps more similar than we cared to understand. So I think there's a logical explanation mm. for the whole idea that NATO would change its shape, change its geometry, change its purpose when the Cold War ended. And there was a lot of discussion then about the peace dividend. Mm. There was a lot of discussion about significant reduction in expenditure on arms. Mm. I mean, if you remember, that discussion didn't actually last very long. And as former members of the Soviet empire joined NATO, particularly the Baltics, then it became much less likely that Russia itself mm. would join. Obviously, the question hung over Ukraine, but I mean, I always took the view, and I think a lot of us took the view, that Ukraine as a NATO member was a bridge too far mm. because it would have been so unacceptable to the Russians, which it's proved to be even with, as it were, Ukraine inclining westwards but not mm. joining NATO. What do you make of uh, the current state of, of the war in Ukraine and particularly this, how this mobilization is, is going down very badly and, and by, according to a lot of observers, is having an, an outsized impact on some of Russia's ethnic minorities and across Siberia that a lot of people feel like some of Russia's minorities are becoming Putin's cannon fodder mm -hmm. sent to rapidly dispatch to the front lines in Ukraine with minimal training and in, in many cases apparently with minimal kit. It looks as though it's been a disaster um, or it's been a failure uh, and, and, and will turn out to have been a disaster. Um, I mean, the Russians have already, or Putin already seems to have backed off the decision saying the mobilization has come to an end, but you've had these vast numbers of young men who've done a runner out of the reach of the Soviet authorities. And I was just listening today how attendance at Moscow's most popular strip club has mm. gone down 50%. Well, you know things are serious when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is a rather bizarre fact. But then also, you know, a lot of popular restaurants um, in Moscow have lost their custom. Do you think the EU slash the West should offer asylum to conscientious objectors, people who refuse to take part in Putin's war, and people, men who are drafted. Do you think... Do you Good think question. How, I'm, I suppose my only question is how do you distinguish them uh, from, you know, Russian sleepers coming west 
with a detrimental effect on the security of one's nations. I mean, given that there would be people amongst them who would perhaps be particularly uh, disadvantageous or dangerous for our national security, and I'm talking about any European country. Um, and I think there's an argument for saying, you know, if we see to see things change in Russia, it's in our interest that these young Russians should stay and fight politically against the regime. Why not? Mm. Uh, rather than coming and finding sanctuary in the West, it's not. It, it, it's not. That's not going to change anything in mm. Russia over time. So I have mixed feelings about that. I can see that on the one hand, maybe we should offer asylum, but on the other, I feel uncomfortable about that as well. Mm. Mm. So we have an interesting question from Matthew from the UK. He says, "I really enjoy listening to your in-depth knowledge and analysis on various topics." Uh, Matthew, your your check is is in the post. Um, what do you think of the hypothetical prospect of an independent Scotland and the relationship with NATO, or that of a possibly independent Shetland and its relationship with the UK, Norway, and NATO? <laughs> I'm going to Shetland tomorrow. Really? Yes. It's they don't have any power. Uh, they don't have any. They've lost power. No, they 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 have power, but they don't have an <clears throat> internet connection. But I think it's being restored today. Well, my daughter lives in the Shetland Islands. Um, I think that Shetland, uh, Shetland's not going to go back to Norway. Mm. It became part of Scotland in the Middle Ages mm. <laughs> through a dynastic marriage, if I've got my facts right. And um, I don't think it's going to drift off into the North Atlantic and mm. become a Scandinavian mm. outpost. So whatever, it remains part of Scotland. Uh, Scottish independence, I'm a huge opponent of Scottish mm. independence. Uh, it would be very damaging for the United Kingdom. It would be, I think, damaging for Scotland's economic uh, interest. Uh, and I think the Scottish nationalists have a pretty uh, dubious record as a government in Scotland, given that they've made a terrible mess um, of a number of things, but the ardent nationalists don't seem to care too much about that, which is rather strange and peculiar. But maybe, Julia, you have sympathies for Scottish nationalism, knowing that you have some Scottish friends. <laughs> well, I, I think the the rise of the SNP is, is an incredible political story. And I think where the SNP have been hugely successful in is that they have been able to fly the flag and totally obliterate the political opposition in Scotland. And it is it is interesting because you have this this sort of terminal contradiction, which is that Scotland tends to be anti-conservative and England tends to be very conservative. And so if you're a Scot who constantly is voting against the Tories every single election and you find yourself to be perennially ruled over by the Conservatives, the answer, a lot of Scots will say, is independence so we can choose choose our own government and choose who we want in power. And what, my, what I would really want from the SNP, they seem to suffer for, for, for a party that, that hate Boris Johnson so much, 
they 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 are they're very similar i find to to the boris johnson brand which is all the the positive campaigning the things can be better i'm going to sell you a, a pipe dream and we're going to vote for positive change and yet we don't really have the details of what that involves. And there's all sorts of confusing things like we would have a Scottish pound that's pegged to pound sterling. We don't need a central bank. Uh, the SNP promise a successful future as an independent country that would be part of the EU. And I have yet to find an official in the European Union who, who says yes, you Scotland would, could could be no, part Scotland of the EU. They've all said no. They've all said Scotland will never. It'll never never get into yeah, the EU. Yeah, because, the, because the, Span the Spanish will stop it. Exactly. Yeah. Not just the Spanish. There are other countries. Well, virtually all the, the Cypriots have yeah. have an issue. We yeah. had that interesting conversation with the president of Kosovo, yeah. who you know Kosovo is waiting for EU accession. And when I brought up the the comparison with Scotland and and independence, and she said no, you know Kosovo is different from Scotland. We're not a breakaway region. We are an independent country, legally recognised by a majority of nations. Yeah. We should have EU accession immediately. A renegade Scottish state that does not have the authority to hold a, a, a referendum that's that's got a legal stamp of approval. We've Well, at the moment, we don't know if, if, if the Scots could hold a referendum. That process is currently underway in the courts. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, I think she will find a way of holding a referendum, even if it's a sort of a, a, a popular referendum that has no legal standing, but that she can then use to say, look, Scots want independence, the, ti the, the tide is Yeah, turned. I think she, she risks losing it. I think that's the problem at the moment. I mean, she, she makes this great sort of statement and play, but if you look at Scottish opinion, um, it's... If she has a majority, it's very marginal. So it's a huge political risk she's taking. Because if she she calls a vote, mm -hmm. even a, a one which is demonstrable rather than legal, uh, and loses it, really, that's the end of the SNP. So I think she she's she's in a much better place, just spinning it out mm. politically, um, and particularly when you know there's such political problems. Uh, in Westminster, that sort of adds to the case, mm. but I, 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 I don't think, I don't think at the moment there's no way that any UK government, Labour or Conservative, are going to legally mm. allow another referendum. And if this High Court ruling, um, which is imminent, says, well, you can't hold one without the agreement of Westminster, mm. then I think the, the issue is parked for at least another 10 years. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are, there are economic arguments to be made and there are emotive arguments to make. And I think there is absolutely an economic case for Scottish independence. If you, one could guarantee the SNP platform of EU membership and, you know, the, the Scots, they are very pro-immigration compared to the English. Uh, they were very pro-EU. There are ideological differences between the Scot Scottish culture and English culture. But I think if you cannot guarantee membership of the EU, you are gambling with Scot with Scotland's future and promising something that the Scots may not may not have and we've seen how how difficult Brexit has been to actualize and that was a similar sort of a, a promise of a bright rosy future and less on the actual brass tacks of how that would be 
realized. Mm. I have one final question here, which is from Michael in Lebanon, and I'm going to be very brief. For Julia, when you presented your question to Erdogan, did you have any resentful fears for your life? This is at the NATO summit this summer, and I asked President Erdogan, given his human rights record, whether Turkey really had any business belonging to NATO, given the NATO charter and the principles it sets out. Um, Michael, no, I, I I don't have any resentful fears for my life, but let's put it this way. Having spoken to some colleagues at CNN who've been through something similar, I have no plans to go to Istanbul anytime soon, but hopefully that may change one day. I think we're, we're at this important juncture where an independent media has ne never been more needed. And one generally tries to avoid talking about previous employers, but I, I think it is a real shame that the World Service have been scaling back on their Persian and Arabic services and shutting down some of their services that they provide, because I think those language services, I mean, asking Erdogan a, you know, a tough question at a press conference is, is one thing, but these journalists, they put their lives on the line every day. There was a producer on BBC Persian who was Skyping her relatives back home in Iran. And it later transpired that outside of frame were two members of the Revolutionary Guard while that conversation was going on. I mean, the people who work for some of the language services are the bravest you'll ever meet, the bravest people you'll ever meet. And the UK is lucky to have the World Service. Yeah, well, the soft influence it. of the World Service is a big deal. But mm. uh, what happened was that the independent funding of the BBC was transferred to the Foreign Office budget. I'm pretty sure that that is still the case. So a very significant part of it's the world has been cut. So yeah. it's just been cut and cut and mm. cut. So a lot of the, the language bits of the World Service like the Arabic broadcasting, mm. have been cut back, whereas the English bit survives. But I think it's a great shame because yeah. it is a, it reached a fantastic mm. global audience and it was highly respected for the integrity of its news broadcasting as well. Yeah. So it would be great if that budget were sort of revisited and perhaps increased again. I mean, it's been quite a turbulent year to launch a foreign policy podcast. Richard, it's been quite a ride and uh, I've certainly really enjoyed it. I hope our listeners have. Here's to many, many more years of fascinating conversations with you and with people around the world. Well, I would say it's been uniquely turbulent. Yeah. And we've never really had so many extraordinary events crowding in on one another. So it's been a privilege to have this opportunity to talk extensively about so many important issues. And I hope that our listeners have enjoyed listening, but I also hope that they've expanded and increased their knowledge and understanding of international issues. I couldn't have worded it better myself. If you liked this episode, sign up. And if you've enjoyed it, why not leave us a review? This has been our first year of One Decision. We hope you'll stay on the ride for many more years to come. From me and the team, thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>